Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing season two, episode six, Descent, directed by Gwyneth Horder Payton and written, as always, by Tom Rob Smith. Before we dive into the episode, I, you know, just a little behind the curtain knowledge for you. We're recording this in advance because of a holiday next week, which means that Richard and I got to rewatch this episode on Valentine's Day. Uh, How was that experience for you, Richard? Uh, It was really heartwarming. I felt great about romance, gay romance in particular. Uh, it just all felt really good. I mean, it's a really it's it's a nice break. It's kind of a happier episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, really, really miserable. uplifting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a really um, uh, it's an episode that's really uh, dialed in on particularly the sort of dynamics of like want and like failed romance and stuff like that. It's not about murder or anything because we're past that now. We're you know in the past. Um, but man, it's it's just as hard to watch as some of the more kind of physically brutal episodes. I think this is where we're really going to start to see, um, and, you know, spoiler alert, we know because we've seen more episodes, but we see Darren Chris like, reigning that unhinged in. Like, the episode opens with Andrew High strung, but not unhinged. He's still in control at the beginning of this episode, almost in control at the beginning of this episode, you know? And so, yeah. uh, and, and that in some ways is even scarier and even sadder. And I think I'm really glad that we were, we watched this once and now we're watching it again because, you know, you pointing out to me, um, how important that Jeff Trail, Finn Wit Rock line of last week's episode of nobody wants your love. 
having that so strongly in my mind when watching this episode and there's so much discussion of of love and who deserves it and how you get it um it really brought out that theme to me a bit more so yeah yeah now that you say it and we've said it a bunch because uh, it was on the episode last week nobody wants your love sounds like kind of the name of like a 90s like crystal waters like club track <laughs> doesn't, doesn't it should yeah set that to a to a beat or something i don't know yeah someone should yeah resample finn with rock's line reading yeah. <laughs> to yeah, a i'm beat. gonna pull like a comedy bang bang and ask our listeners to someone to yes to record that and send it in do it please thank you um and before once more before we get into the rundown i i wanted to say that uh we mentioned this last week that one of the upcoming episodes is going to be based on the film American Gigolo. That is this episode. Uh, so I, because I, I'm nothing if not a hyper overachiever when it comes to podcasts, decided to watch American Gigolo, which I had never seen. It was made in 1980, Richard Gere film about a gigolo in America. And I, uh, so I might sort of, I definitely will be peppering in my well in American Gigolo uh, comments throughout this episode. So how, how did you watch it? Was it on? On, it's like, on Cin- it's... Cinemax. <laughs> oh, so, oh, okay. There you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, the, the listeners should know that you are o- often saying well in the movie American Gigolo. I mean, just a separate of this podcast. Like it's, you, it's, a, it's a movie you reference a lot. It's kind of my life motto. I have a, <laughs> I have a tattoo that says well in American Gigolo. But yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, let us go back in time to 1996, La Jolla, California. Um, this is... This is where it all started. Uh, Andrew grew up in San Diego. So this is like we're back home for Andrew, even though we don't go like home home till the end of the episode. But uh, this is home turf for him. And, uh, you know, we see him rolling up in a pretty car with the shopping bags, getting undressed, blah, blah. And like this is this opening scene of Andrew sort of looking fabulous and in control and diving into the pool and all that is how I knew this was the American Gigolo episode before I watched American Gigolo because I knew that scene of Richard Gere sort of picking out his Armani suits and getting dressed uh, naked or half naked. Um, it's a very iconic scene for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I think it has to do with like sort of the female gaze, men being concerned about clothes, like feels new, like all this stuff for 1980 felt kind of very new. It feels a little... Uh, not as new now when you watch it, but um, it, this just like really kicks off with um, I don't know, a, just a com- completely different Andrew from the last time we saw him. What did you think of this like this opening? Um, I, I liked it. I mean, I think it's funny and maybe I don't know a little problematic or something that like we keep having Andrew sexualized you know like mm. like because it's darren chris and he's so beautiful and like mm-hmm. we i think we've seen his butt now like four times in the show i feel like yes. or, or at least he's you know like been in his underwear you know um and and that's i i understand i guess a little bit of what they're doing i just don't always think that contextually um you know i i'm, I'm wondering if we're supposed to be ogling darren chris or if we're supposed to be ogling andrew Kinnanen, you know um I on the one hand I agree with you on the other hand I think if it were to be in any episode it should be in this episode. Sure. Which yes. is 
Andrew, I think, in the most control of his sex, his youth and sexuality as a, as like a power, a chip he can play, you know? Yeah. And I think also something we talked about in a much earlier episode about particularly, I think maybe it's the first episode uh, of the show when he has this kind of what we've kind of decided was a fantasy conversation with Versace at, at, at this, you know, opera house that like some of this show might be pitched in a way that it's supposed to just kind of be how Andrew imagines himself. Mm, right. And yeah. the episode is called descent. So we start at this, like, you know, everything is sleek and luxe and beautiful. And, you know, he's surveying, you know, he stands there naked surveying his kind of territory, his kingdom. And then everything tumbles down into nothing by the end of the episode. So like maybe a little bit of this kind of high fantasy at the top is, supposed to be a sort of blinkered or 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 delusional view of of what his life was at that moment yeah that's a that's a great point um and we get even more fantasy because there is a, a smidge of versace in this episode not a lot but a smidge and so we do get like an uh, a more overt uh edgier fantasy towards the end of the episode but but i hadn't even that hadn't even occurred to me that this might be like his uh fantastical view of himself and i really like that interpretation um the track playing here is Self Control by Laura Branigan, which is not only like a great mood 80s track, uh, even though it's the 90s, but also just a continuation of the show using, you know, self control. This is Andrew sort of almost barely, but almost, almost in control of what's going on. Um, and then obviously he loses that. Um, the, he does this thing where he walks into his closet or the closet he shares, I guess, with, the character of Norman, but like he sort of touches the clothes and I think it's, I didn't go back and rewatch it, but I think it's an almost identical shot to an episode one when he does that in his friend's closet, you know, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So like this is Andrew actually having the things that he fantasized he might have when he was in San Francisco. Um, we see the credit card that was maxed out in episode five. He uses it a lot in this episode. Uh, you know, so, so better times for that credit card as well. Um, and we see him do like a little bit of Coke. Um, no big deal. Uh, and we meet Norman Blashford, who was a real life figure that Maureen North writes about a lot in her book. And actually, you know, it's, it's interesting when you read Maureen's book, it's interesting to sort of track who talked to her and who didn't. And sometimes I'm surprised who talked to her and Norman Blashford talked to her. Uh, yeah, that, that is interesting. I was going to ask you if, if he had participated. Because yeah, yeah. There's a specificity here that feels real, you know, like he doesn't feel like a made up character. There's enough detail there that I'm like, that, that must've been a real guy. Yeah. He's a real guy. And like, he not only talked to her, he tried to help the FBI, like when they were looking for Andrew too. So like, mm-hmm. this is, this is a guy who I feel like really want to own, I don't know, his minor role in this narrative, uh, played by the actor, Michael Nori, who most people know from Flashdance, a 1983 film, once again, setting that early 1980s vibe. I think it's the sort of the same, even though this is the 90s, I think it's sort of the same uh, feeling you get when you see like a Judith Light or um, someone else, you know, it's like, oh, this is someone I recognize from around that time, do you know? Um, but he's he's decorating this beautiful, beautiful mansion in La Jolla uh, for Andrew's birthday. And uh, his friend shows up and he openly hates Andrew. And this is, this is a, you know, we've had a bunch of different kinds of gay men, gay characters in this 
show, this is a fairly stereotypical of like bad cinema gay character, the like flamboyant bitchy gay guy in a spectrum of, you know, gay men. Does this strike you as like a, an obnoxious portrayal or just sort of like, yep, guys like this exist as long, uh, like alongside guys like Jeff Trail and David Madsen and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't stand out to me as, as something, um, egregious. Yeah. I mean, I think also that later in the episode, we see, we get some, some further shading on this, this kind of weird dynamic that ever, you know, that Norman and, and, uh, Andrew have with, and this other friend, like, you know, and so I think that like what could have been caricature is then, you know, 30 minutes later, um, deepened and made more human. Yeah, and you see that his like aggression towards Andrew is maybe more than anything protectiveness of his own friend. His yeah, friend. it's yeah. it's rooted in something real, and yeah. and, um, and we'll talk about it. But like, yeah, it's 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 another way that the show kind of nods to the gay history of you know surrounding these people. Um, I wanted to point out, like, if you're reading Maureen's book, or maybe if you're hopping around it, th- this chapter on Norman and Andrew is called "Kept Boy," which I just thought was a great uh, title for a chapter. They're not all evocatively titled. Sometimes it's just called like Jeff or David, but this one's called "Kept Boy," which I kind of liked. Um, and then we see the the character of Liz Cote, uh, played by Annalie Ashford, who we haven't seen, I think, since episode one, um, to show up at the party. And this, so this party scenario, this birthday party for Andrew is a complete fiction. Um, in that I don't think there ever was a time, oh, there's, I could say with almost certainty, there was never a time when Norman, Lee Miglin, <laughs> Jeff Trail, David Madsen, and Liz Cote were all in the same place. But uh, the show decided... Yeah, it's a little like Andrew Keenan and This Is Your Life. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> But the show sort of just decided to engineer this set piece to try to get... To show Andrew trying to hold the reins on like nine different realities and losing control yeah. of all of it. So, um, you know, and, and like Andrew, Andrew is uh, deeply anxious... That David's coming, um, and he's trying to control sort of like his own, like how he comes off to David. And Liz asks Andrew who he's trying to be, and he says someone he, meaning David, someone he can love, which is like, uh, very, it's the first of many, like, uh, moments. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, and there's a, there's a repeat of this when he sort of like tries to dress Jeff. Jeff trail up and gives him a gift to, you know, gives him this gift that he wants Jeff to give to him. And he says, I just need him. I just need David to see that I'm loved. And Jeff goes, I do love you, buddy. And Andrew just like, can't, it's not, the tragedy of Andrew is not just that like, he's, I'm crazy. And, um, sorry, that's, that's dismissive that he is like, you know, damaged and, um, I don't know, unlovable in some way. It's that he can't even see the like the authentic love that's in yeah. front of him. Yeah, you know? and it's so um, jarring because we've just had this episode that was a you know that ends with Jeff Trail being murdered, but like these like bruising fights between you know uh, Jeff and Andrew, and to see them in this like much happier, more innocent sort of time, and you're like, he's such a sweet guy. Like, why don't you just like? you know, hang out with him and not bother with all of this like bullshit, you know, um, that, that is so shallow and, and ridiculous. But like, you know, I think that 
the, the way that Darren Chris plays this character, the way he's written, it's just like this, he, all he is is pretense. There's actually nothing. And I think that maybe a part of him knows that if he were just to be like, all right, let's dispense with all this nonsense and actually just be me, there wouldn't be really anything there. You know, or at least um, that's what he's afraid of. Do you know? Right. Like, that's yeah. right. Exactly. Whereas I think that like someone, the way that Jeff Trail is is portrayed in in the show, especially in this episode, it's like he saw something decent and worthwhile, maybe in Andrew, or maybe it was just like, well, he's the first person that I sort of was gay with, not like in a in a sexual context, but like you know, right. he was my sort of my guide into this world. So like maybe that was enough of a of a hold i don't know but yeah it's just like this 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 seeing jeff in this much different context is is um is it's sad yeah and some i mean this this episode is so sad and similarly liz who like also genuinely cares about andrew and wants to Mm -hmm. like be there for him um you know is is just another way in which yeah he can't he can't take authentic love in he's chasing this other thing um and there, there's a section in the book uh, that Maureen writes about, and I really can't tell if it's just like people being mean after like Jeff is dead and Andrew's dead and all of that. But um, the friends of Jeff's in San Diego were saying like, there's no way Jeff would have been friends with Andrew if it weren't for like the way in which Andrew could always lavishly pay for things, um, take him out to nice meals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like that maybe does jeff a disservice and also andrew a disservice or it's true i don't know but uh whether or not it's true that that is evidently what andrew believed that like he needed to have and and when we get to i don't know the second to last season of the uh, episode of the season we'll we'll probably better see why but like he believed you needed these things these actual things uh in order to have anyone admire respect or love you you know so yeah um and then we get like <laughs> when I, I was struck watching this it reminded me of like i don't know an episode of saved by the bell from like hell where like zach has two <laughs> two dates that he's trying to juggle you know what i mean it's like yeah andrew just trying to manage everything because like he's he's freaked out that that jeff and david are hitting it off um and he's uh he's lee miglin shows up which uh, I'm looking at the show notes right now, and I guess I wrote last night, this makes me very sad in all caps when Lee Miglin shows up because it's just really, really upsetting. Um, and then we get this crazy photo with all these people, uh, you know, three of whom Andrew will kill. Which he and Lee Miglin knew each other from California? No, that's the that's sort of the, the like assumption that the show is making. You know, okay. the, the show is making an assumption that, like, Andrew was a regular visitor to lee and like that lee right. would have come out to california for his birthday to see him yeah yeah oh i see okay okay but they but because all right because i yeah i guess they, they knew each other though from chicago originally well there's no i, I mean according to the show's fiction there's no like there's no right. concrete evidence of that so okay when lee showed up i was like this is when we're really diving into fantasy territory because like you know david madsen did visit andrew in san diego jeff lived in san diego norman lived in san diego like that could have all happened liz could have come down but like and then lee miglin's here and i'm like oh okay. yeah yeah um but yeah but and if you notice in the background judith light is playing one of the cater <laughs> Yeah, so they're all there. Oh. Kathy Moriarty's serving drinks. Like, yeah, William Reese's parking cards. So, um, <laughs> it's, oh god, oh god, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, 
we, I, I skipped over the scene that you were alluding to earlier, which is this conversation between Norman's friend and Andrew, where um, he says some very, uh, you know, Norman's friend is talking about like the rules of basically being a kept boy and like how Andrew thinks he's doing Norman a favor when Norman's actually doing Andrew a favor. And then he has this great line where he's like, you're too lazy to work and too proud to be kept. Um which is, uh, you know, one of many referendums on Andrew's character that that sounds uh, very accurate. What did what did you think of this encounter? Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, it it, it kind of it, it brings to mind or evokes, you know, a, a certain dynamic that you can see, uh, obviously in heterosexual relationships, but I think in particular gay relationships where one person is much older. I mean, we could crassly call it a kind of sugar daddy situation, but like it's oftentimes more complicated than that um, in that there is a sort of paternal filial sort of relationship as well as maybe a sexual one and a mentorship, uh, you know, aspect. And, and I think that a lot of times for younger gay guys who are are coming from, you know, a a family situation that doesn't support them or a community that doesn't, you know, that they need older people to sort of show them how it's done. And oftentimes that can become sexual, I guess, and there can be an exchange of, you know, money or gifts or whatever. Um, And so it's a complicated thing. And I think the show articulates that well in, in, in how Norman approaches Andrew and, Obviously, his friend is deeply suspicious of the whole thing. And, you know, we've seen throughout the show that there are certain people who can kind of sniff him out and just know that, like, there's not really a lot of good there. Yeah. Um, and I th- so I think it's really interesting the way that the show kind of establishes. It, again, this show has to do a lot with a, li- with a little bit of time in each episode, you know, because it's covering a number of years. It's establishing a situation like, you know, Judith, like, you know, her opening thing, like just basically giving us all the, b- the backstory exposition on her, who she is right away. So I think this is another example of the show compressing a lot of, you know, information about us, about a kind of group dynamic uh, into one scene pretty, pretty successfully. Yeah, there's um, there's this brief mention of the of the the fact that Norman lost his partner to AIDS and sort of like just before Andrew and was sort of like you know Andrew is a bit of a rebound in a way or a way for Norman to sort of at least yeah recover from that. There's also this really interesting section of Maureen's book that um, blew my mind actually, which is all about this like secret gay society not so secret gay society, I guess in America, uh, called Gamma Moo, uh, which I had never heard of, but it's, you know, fabulously wealthy and rich, uh, gay, I think exclusively men, uh, but I could be wrong. Um, who meet in, you know, amazing resorts or people's beautiful homes and are just sort of like, uh, we're here, we're queer and we're powerful sort of thing. And it's sort of amazing. And, um, Norman took Andrew along and sort of inducted him into this, I guess, fraternity of sorts. And, um, and Maureen describes, um, the like wh- how Andrew introduced himself. You're supposed to get up and say who your sponsor is and your profession. Um, and when Andrew got up, uh, he said, hi, my name is Andrew De Silva, which was his like, the name he used when he didn't want to be a uh, Filipino. Uh, this is an Italian assumed name. He said, hi, my name is Andrew De Silva. My sponsor is Norman Blashford, who is also keeping me. Uh, and he got a big laugh and Norman got pissed off and was very 
like uncomfortable about that. So uh, I guess real Andrew at least was a little bit more comfortable with the, the this notion of being kept. Um, but uh, you know, in in the context of the show, I mean, I, I understand why there's no room for this gay secret society in the show. But I have to say, like, this is one of the the most enthralling sections of Maureen's book because I had no idea about this whole thing. So I can't talk about it because it's uh, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Because I am fabulously wealthy. Yeah, you run in many circles. You host these people in your in your home. Yeah, actually, um, I've never heard of that. So that's interesting. I I, I should I should you know maybe read this book that we keep talking about. <laughs> um, no, I like I like sort of uh, lecturing you on it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, so. Like we, we after the party, we see the aftermath of the party where Andrew has like an insane person scrubbed out every single face in the photo, the group photo, except for his and David's. Uh, and he goes to Norman with a list of demand. And I really love this scene because Norman, Norman is no dummy. He has done his research on Andrew. He knows everything about Andrew and. And this is once again a way in which Andrew can't accept like love being offered to him. And I'm not saying that Norman loves him in the like high flown romantic way, but like Norman saying, I know who you are. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't bother me. Help me help you. I want to put you through school. You're so smart. I want to support yeah. you. It's paternal. Um, and I just, and Andrew is just, loses it over like the you mentioned this i think a couple weeks ago like anytime andrew is called out on his lies he just Ooh, it's, can't you know it's really bad well yeah. because i think what i said earlier like he has this deep fear that like once the lies are stripped away that there is really nothing there yeah um and you know it, it's it's a thing you know and i think that the, the the party scene this scene it it makes you wish that you could know what about Andrew was worth it to these people, you know, because what we've seen, we're watching a very sort of, you know, particular version of this character and we're watching it in reverse. And so he's about to be more humanized in the next couple episodes. But, um, at this point, like he fucking sucks. And like, it's just like really, and we know, we know that he's a liar. We know that he's full, you know, full of it. Like, so like, why does, why does it, you know, Liz like him? Why does Norman like, you know, why does Jeff like him? And I, and I don't know if the show is exactly, or maybe it's Chris's performance. I don't know, but like, is exactly giving us enough. Like I, I wasn't really sure why Norman was invested, you know? Um, and maybe we'll not, I mean, maybe we, that's just not to know, but, um, it was something about this episode, while very effective, that I felt like a little removed from its compassion, I guess. And I think that the, that might be, I agree with you, and I think that might be a little bit of a, a byproduct of what you were talking about earlier in terms of the compact storytelling. Because they have to tell us why Norman um, likes Andrew. They can't show us. And so um, Andrew talks about it, Norman's friend talks about it in terms of like Andrew's being so cultured like that he is handsome and young but norman could take him to like nice restaurants or the opera or traveling in europe all of which he did with andrew the real andrew and like andrew's conversant in art and wine and all of that sort of stuff and so he like he he is like a a prized show pony basically um mm -hmm. but they have to tell us that they can't show 
you know, especially given the reverse narrative, because we do see a little bit more of Norman and Andrew before this episode, but like, um, I mean, back in time, but like, they can't show us all the ways in which Andrew is a pleasing companion to Norman. And they, they showed us, I think, I think the best way they, they did this or, or established this was Jeff and Andrew, because I really can see the way in which Andrew throws Jeff a lifeline in that bar uh, when he just felt so overwhelmed and know what he was doing would engender loyalty and gratitude to a certain degree that has its limits, but like that mm-hmm. makes the most sense to me. Do you know? I, yeah. I still yeah. think that if someone was like, you have to change your shoes and you have to pretend to give me these shoes, I'd be like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> goodbye. Bye. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> this I'm- party is awkward already, <laughs> but like, yeah. I'm keeping these shoes, but I'm leaving. Uh, but if Cody Fern then showed up at the party, I would say. Oh, that's true. So. I'm, me too, to be honest with you. All right. So uh, Andrew says work and school are ordinary. He sort of like shrieks this. And I think we'll be able to unpack that moment a little bit more when we get further into the season. Um, he sends a chair going through, sailing through a glass table. And he says, I'm leaving. I expect you to call, which just feels so deeply delusional. And then we see Andrew arrive at that like sad little apartment. We saw him leave last week in episode five. Uh, It's clean, but it's like very, very modest. And uh, when we see him leave it in episode five, it is a wreck. And we see it sort of get a little bit destroyed over the course of this episode. But um, and then we get you, you were right last week when you were like, don't we talk about the postcard a little bit more later in the season? It's true. Like there's um, this is where we see. Andrew send the post. It's crazy. It still doesn't make sense to me that he would do this, you know? Well, because something at the party was that like, that, you know, again, how much of this is perception versus reality, but like at the party, it really seemed like Jeff and David hit it off. Right. And they had an eat. And it wasn't just that they were like being explicitly flirty or whatever. I think what it was is that they just had a natural rapport. Yeah. And nothing in Andrew's life has had a natural rapport, maybe with Liz a little bit, but like, but like just seeing these two gay men who he has affection for in different ways, just like, you know, easily just enter into a conversation and sort of, you know, you know, bounce off of each other. That really, you know, that's something he wants, but, you know, it, we will never have, we know. Um, and so I think that like that, you know, just like, you know, he is the destroyer of, of, of right. title fame. Um so, you know, how does he kind of um, tear apart Jeff Trail's, you know, contented new gay existence? Well, you know, throw a, you know, throw a, a wrench into the gears and, 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 you know, screw things up with his family. It's just so interesting because it like, um, I completely agree with you. And especially that moment when Jeff is like, um, David is asking Jeff about being in the military and, and Jeff is like, well, it's a sad story. And David's like, I don't mind that either. And like the idea that Jeff could show this much vulnerability, like right away and for David to immediately accept it. And Andrew like is terrified of showing vulnerability at any time um, is, I completely agree with your interpretation of that. I just think that like Andrew should be smarter than this. Like this is a, uh, if he wanted to get back at Jeff, I can see him doing that, but this is like not the smartest way to do that. I don't know. It just seems like, I guess you're right. It's just a, a wild, impulsive act of destruction. Um, and this was something that happened. Yeah. This, right. This actually yeah. happened. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, like, I don't know that, but Jeff, uh, or Andrew rather is not really ever thinking that 
like he 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 obviously swings big when he's trying to make a point you know uh and this is maybe just another example of that i guess you're right he's smart but he's not calculating like he's just impulsive um yeah and um we get this confrontation between andrew and and jeff um and i thought darren chris's delivery when when jeff is like you know this this postcard happened and andrew goes how funny what did you tell him it was so good it's a really mm-hmm, good delivery mm-hmm. really creepy the camera's right on him and um it's just it's a really really good line reading i think um and then and then jeff announced that he's going to minneapolis to to get a job that david helped him acquire uh once again this is this is just the show condensing a narrative because um Jeff did go to Minneapolis, but there really isn't any evidence, uh, according to Maureen's research, that like it was connected to David at all. So uh, it does seem like a huge, crazy coincidence uh, that that Jeff would move to Minneapolis uh, when David Madsen's right. there. But um, and it's, and this is the show gently yeah. hinting like it has in in previous episodes, but later in the ch- timeline of the chronology, right? Um, that maybe there was something there, right? You know, between them. But also, again, we're talking about maybe this is all through sort of Andrew's perception of things. Um, Exactly. I think it almost doesn't matter if Jeff moved to Minneapolis, like, for David. Like, the fact that these two men who are so important to him are in the same city away from him uh, is maddening. Um, Something in this scene is that um, I I, I noticed in episode five, there's this, like, creepy collage – of Versace images up on the wall when when Andrew leaves the apartment in episode five to go to Minneapolis. Here I believe see- you called it the murder wall. Oh, the murder <laughs> wall. Thank you. I think that's what you called it. Here we see the murder wall getting built over the course of this episode. So we see the first Versace photo up on the wall and it's right over Jeff's shoulder as he's talking. So Jeff's like yelling at um, Andrew and right over his shoulder is this like taped up photo of Versace sort of looming there. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. Oh, and I forgot about like Andrew's amazing weird dig to Versace at the party earlier when he's like, no, these shoes are Ferragamo. (laughs) Like Versace doesn't do shoes that would require some measure of craftsmanship. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Again, he's just because he's just tearing things down that he is envious of, you know? Yeah. Which we all do, but like we don't, not to this extreme. Um, and, and then we see, this is, this is just the beginning of like, just the saddest thing. Um, we see Andrew call David and, uh, something that Cody Fern plays so well from the, the jump of this episode and it just intensifies over the course of the episode is just this polite discomfort, right? This like, I mean, maybe too polite in this instance, but like even when he walks into the party, he's just sort of like, he's curious. He likes Andrew, but he's also just like really uncomfortable because something is wrong, you know? And yeah. yeah. And I think that like, I, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had friendships or acquaintanceships uh in my adult life here in new york like with people who i'm like i don't know if i like this person but i'm kind of curious what they're going to show me yeah you know like what are they going to take me to you know i you know it's it's maybe not the it's maybe an unkind thing to do to sort of like you know almost lead people on in a way because you're you're curious about what they can you know you know show you or, or provide for you um, but I understand the impulse in a way. I think that obviously the fact that they had had sex muddies that. But, um, you know, there there's a part of me that's like, why is David continuing to do this or interact with him? But like, I also understand it to some extent because, you know, he, 
like he says later in the episode, he hadn't traveled much and uh, he doesn't really know the world, you know, or the, the country even. So, um, and Andrew is somebody who purports to, you know, have access to all of that. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention that exact same line reading, which I think is really good. The Cody Fern's like, oh, I haven't traveled much. And like, he doesn't say it in a way that like, you don't like David because you, you might not like David if he took this, took this call, but also like, I want to believe him when he's like, well, I wanted to come and see. Anyway, we're getting, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because, yeah. uh, this is where I go. Well, an American gigolo, um, throughout the episode, Andrew was like insisting that he get a Mercedes from Norman, which is like when he was driving like a perfectly nice, I don't know what it was, but it was nice and shiny. Um, and so he rents a Mercedes from the LA, the lavish LA hotel he books to impress David. And, uh, this is the same car that Richard Gere drives in American Gigolo, this black Mercedes convertible. Also, the shots of the hotel is very, there's a lot of establishing shots of Beverly Hills hotels, um, in American Gigolo. So that's, that's very, uh, and then, and like the pose and the balcony and all of that. It's just like, here's Andrew playing it up. Um, and, it's just, it's, David is so uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable and sad for David and sad, uh, for Andrew. But this, this scene where Andrew takes David to get a suit and they talk about David's architectural aspirations and Andrew wants to buy all these things. Like he wants to be the one, he wants to give people things. He wants to, um, feel worthy of love. So if he buys people things, they will love him. But it's also like this flip of where he was with Norman, where like he's the keeper and David's the kept boy in this scenario. Right. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. And, but there's, and, and there's something so inauthentic about his generosity. You know, there's these lines about like, well, if you just, you know, I'll up your allowance, but you keep spending on other people or whatever. And it's like, and, and, and Andrew is sort of proud of the fact that he's always buying people things, but there's nothing, actually generous about it because it all comes with like really really like thick strings attached like you know it's all about andrew and and so that's that and that's the the sort of characterization of him on the whole you know the reason that last week jeff screamed at him nobody wants your love is partly because the love he is offering so to speak you know if it even is real love like is so bound up in andrew's own sort of needs and self you know uh you know, anyway, it, 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 and so, like, watching David quickly realize, like, oh, this, A, was a mistake to come here, and B, like, nothing about what this guy does is real yeah. it is interesting. Um, and then we get this this dinner scene, which you and I had talked about a little bit before we started recording, another, like, gut-wrenching line delivery, which is, yeah. uh, David says, I get that you don't have many great nights with people, so when you do, it feels huge, life-changing. Mm-hmm. And you and I both were like, oh! Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, and, like, I'll, I'll get personal for a second. Um, like, I recently went on a couple really nice dates with a guy, and then it just sort of, and I was like, oh my god, like, we're getting married, you know, but, like, then it wasn't, because, and he's, we're still in, you know, perfectly amicable but like it kind of was like yeah i haven't had like a lot of great dates in the past year or so or what so like when i had a good one it was like well here we go and i just think that that is so that line about about you i feel like you haven't had a great night a lot of great nights and when you do you know it's just like that the psychology of that line is so exacting and 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 but also broad and like you know it, it it says a lot and says something very specific at the same time um I think it's so beautifully delivered by Cody Fern. I think he's so good in a scene where he's both frustrated, but also 
you know, he's pitying and I don't know. It's a, it's a really, and I think that Chris is really measured and, and, you know, in that scene. And I think when, when David's face falls and he realizes that, realizes that Andrew's never going to give him the truth, if there even is a truth, um, is, you know, again, another moment that's sort of crucial to the whole ethos of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I have a note that just says David's face when he can tell Andrew is lying. Um, the, yeah. um, I, I completely agree with you. And I think the compassion that David Madsen shows for Andrew here is all wrapped up in this like pitying repulsion too. It's just like, it's true. I get that you don't have many great nights with people. So when you do, it feels huge life changing. Like that's compassionate, but it's also like, but that's not my life experience. That's your sad life experience. And that's like, that's off putting too. But uh, I, I hesitate uh, of what I'm going to say next. So I'll just say like, if any listener, like, I don't know that there's anything such as a spoiler in the story of a real person's life. Um, but if you if you don't want to know anything about what's like coming down the pike, like I would suggest you skip ahead maybe thirty seconds, something like that. Um but I just want to say here that like David asks David asks for the truth. Andrew says he'll tell him anything. And then actually what he tells him is almost entirely true. Even though it sounds completely made up. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was completely made up. But the 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 part where he slept in the master bedroom, the part where he had a credit card of his own, the part where his mom would bring him food, um, you know, like he 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 loses it here and there. Like he says his dad was at Merrill Lynch. That's true. But then when he says he went to rent a pineapple plantation, that's not true. The stuff he says about his mom is not true. But like occasionally or for the most part, actually, he's saying true things like David asked for truth. Andrew said the truth. What David doesn't know is that Andrew's upbringing was insane, which it was, and so yeah, it's yeah, that's and this is even this, sadder. This, uh, yeah, it is, and I think that you know a lot of that scene of what what he's talking about is rewarded two episodes hence, right? Um, and I think what is compared, you know, next to episode four, I think one of the real, you know, sort of showcase episodes of this of this season. Uh, I haven't we haven't seen the last one yet, so who knows? But like, um. But yeah, this I this episode I think in some ways while really effective might suffer the most from the timeline thing, like the reverse chronology and the jumping around in time because like we're given so much that I feel like is richer to me because I know what, you know, I've seen subsequent episodes. And so you know, Andrew saying certain things, it's like, "Oh man, like that, you know, part of that's true." And like there's a resonance to it that because i because i'm aware of things that may that like a casual viewer is not um so i don't know it's just like it this i i guess like you and i doing this little project like in in a certain way is not necessarily reflective of how most people are watching the show so well i mean it it isn't reflective of how most people are watching the show so i'm just kind of curious how that affects um, perception of like certain things in this episode i know it's really interesting i had the same thought watching this episode as i was like i really hope that people rewatch this season but that's mm-hmm, crazy mm-hmm. to expect anyone to do in the era of peak tv you know like people barely have time to watch it one time through you know um, also as you and i know like this is particularly like punishing stuff to revisit so yeah. 
Yeah. Without, without the, without the homework, like to do for the podcast, I don't know that I would have, but like it is so rewarding in terms of like digging into layers. And hopefully like our discussion can bring some of that up for you guys. Um, and we'll do our best to sort of keep looking back as like, Hey, remember that thing from a few episodes ago? This is where it kind of pays off. But, um, I did want to read one little thing from Maureen's book, um, in the David chapter. There's this, um, you know, a professor who knew David and Andrew talking to her. And he said, David was just a person who demanded a lot of honesty. He wanted someone to be real with him. And that was just not in the cards with Andrew. And it's just like, that's it, man. You know, like Andrew couldn't do it. And even when he's like trying to do it here, it doesn't work. And so it's just heartbreaking. And David, you know, presumably leaves and, and, um, Andrew has spent, oh, what was the bill? It was like $2,700, like almost $3,000 on this like futile attempt to woo and win someone. So, um, yeah. So, uh, there, the murder wall is growing. I just want to note like murder wall watch. Uh, there's at least like five photos of Versace. And I think actually there's like a photo of Andrew in there. I don't know. It's, it's, it's complex that murder wall, but it is growing. Um, I mean, we all have weird murder walls that are, you know, they're, you know, unique to each person, you know. Mine, for example, is of you. So, you know, (laughs) I hope that doesn't make it. Well, now I I know who who to add to mine. (laughs) Mine is just all Adam Rapun. I'm not, I'm not going to murder Adam Rapun. Oh, um, no. God, God, no. Okay. So we get Andrew talking to this bartender in a San Diego bar that we've seen a couple times now. Um, Jordan Reichel's Freedom is playing, which is, I don't know. I just like to take note of what's playing at any given time. Um, and we see Andrew approach like someone, you know, his regular drug dealer, who I guess has been furnishing with Coke. Uh, and he says, I need something stronger. And... Um, Earlier in the episode, Norman's friend, uh, you know, accused Andrew of doing crystal or whatever. And Andrew's like, I don't do gutter drugs. Um, mm-hmm. And here he tells his drug dealer, like, I've done crystal before, but I guess this is like, I don't know, hyper crystal. I don't know the nuances of crystal meth, but this is like some strong shit is promised here. And um, and this is what we get is this drug trip. Um, that's shot in these like neon reds and blues, which uh, is an aesthetic also imported from American Gigolo, which is interesting because um, I feel like they've used those reds and blues before, but I might just be thinking of the marketing because they're marketing like they're the, yeah. sh- the promotion, the promo shots for the, for the show are this, this dramatic red and blue lighting. Um, I can't remember if they used it um, in other fantasy sequences, but um, it's very marked here this um red and blue and here we have edgar ramirez always welcome edgar ramirez um as as a as a fantasy deferential johnny versace uh tailoring a suit for andrew and what's depressing is that even in andrew's fantasy uh johnny a subservient johnny versace like sort of stands up to him (laughs) and puts him in his place so yeah yeah uh what do you think of this use of fantasy here um i spent a lot of last week calling things on the nose i think this scene is really on the nose Mm -hmm. uh you know saying like i have you know he was like we're the same or whatever he's like but i have one thing love people love me or something he's you know he basically is like here is the theme of this show (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a little it's a little much but i mean it's an interesting scene and i think that the, the 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 more that this show plays with abstraction you know here and there because this is not something that oj did at all because there were so many real life i mean so much of that was on television you know so they couldn't really 
uh, go too far into the fantastical or the the imagined. Mm-hmm. But this this story is obviously a lot less known in a way um and so they kind of have these flights of fancy i don't don't think they always work but i think in this episode if we're talking about uh what is real what isn't what is kind of you know filtered through andrew's psyche um yeah sure throw a dream sequence where you know versace says the thing he's most scared of to him sure (laughs) i wonder if there was like a different way to use this very similar trope like this could have been a way to get versace in like almost every episode if if Andrew had yeah, a mm-hmm. fantasy version of Versace that he like talked to when he was high or whatever, um, or in dreams, and if if there was a way in which like because I actually kind of I actually like that opera sequence, uh, fantasy sequence. I liked that interaction between Versace and and Andrew Cunanan. Um, I agree with you that this is a little too uh, overt, but maybe that's like you know this is not the subtle drug. <laughs> this is the hit you over the head drug, but. Um, but yeah, I almost wonder if that that could have been a way in if that was something that they were interested in because I you know people are keep going like where's the Versace where's the beef um, and you know we only get this one small scene um, with Edgar so and no Penelope like I mean couldn't Andrew have also fantasized Donatella there as well that would have been nice so um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. uh, so we see Andrew in his apartment which is looking worse for wear he's strung out he's tweaking he's back in the bar like. I th- we get this nice little contrast like the last time he was in there I think the bartender was like buying his shit and now the bartender is not buying his shit and Andrew can't afford to tip him and um, he needs money like this drug dealer he's like I need more time is what he says to his drug dealer the drug dealer says you've got you've got nothing but time what you need is money and I was like Ooh, oddly philosophical drug dealer um, and then we see Andrew trying to break into Norman's home now the first time you saw this Maybe not knowing, like, I don't know if you knew, like, who the victims of Andrew Cunanan were or whatever, like, having um, having seen this kind of thing with Andrew and in murder so many times, like, were you worried for Norman in this scene? Or did you know that he was not one of the victims? Um, I guess I had known... Yeah, like, no, because I knew, because, like, you know, like, I'd seen the previous episodes or whatever, but, like, I, I guess I was sort of interested in... What, what were were there any legal ramifications of this? Like, did Norman actually call the police? Was there any attention on Andrew in San Diego at this time because he was, uh, you know, a tweaker who was trying to break into a mansion? Like, or was he just not on any sort of legal radar at that point? But anyway, this this scenario, which I believe is invented, is echoed next week. So we'll talk about it next week. But um, in the meantime, we can talk about Darren Chris having complete as Andrew Cunanan having a complete mental breakdown um, outside of these glass windows and doors of Norman's house and just being shut out of this paradise that he, you know, paradise lost and, um, and how good he is at, at this complete and utter, you know, fall, this descent that we see. So, um, and then we get this, this last set piece, which is Andrew going to see his mother. And this is, uh, I actually felt a lot of sympathy for Andrew throughout this episode. And then this is like where you're really starting to dig into it because we see how emotionally unavailable to him, his mother is while she's also in her twisted way, sort of lavishing him with love and affection. And, um, Andrew trying like actual calls for help of Andrew trying to be like, I'm unhappy mom. And those, those things going ignored. Um, 
in in Maureen's book, I had already read about more um Andrew's mom at this point, and Andrew's mom in present like in when Maureen went to go talk to Andrew's mom, her mental faculties had slipped far more, and she was just not um there and it's a very uncomfortable section of the book because you just get like a lot of uh, madness in in this section where maureen's trying to get straight answers out of this woman who is not in any position to give them um so i was like on edge as soon as i saw this character show up in the show she's not played as that unhinged in the show i i find her much more sort of easily accessible um but it's still the first inkling we get of this very unhealthy emphasis on fantasy and status uh, household that Andrew grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good introduction into something we're going to see a lot deeper. I mean, there's clearly, uh, it's clearly a very strange situation, strange relationship. Um, and I think it's a good tease. Yep. And then she asks where he's going next and he says Minneapolis and we know how that ended. So great times. Um, is, is there anything else? Um, so this, we should say that this, yeah, this episode's called The Descent. Um, next week's episode's called The Ascent. So we will see sort of some of the foundation of what we saw in this episode uh, get built uh, next week. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of this episode in particular? Hmm. I don't think so. I think we, we kind of covered it. Uh, I, you know, I guess it won't really matter to the listener because this is going to air next week. But don't watch this episode on Valentine's Day. If you save this show and this podcast for next year, just <laughs> clear clear some time around that holiday. <laughs> um, yeah. And also don't watch American Gigolo on Valentine's Day, which I also did. So um... well, That's on you. That's on you, my friend. <laughs> but... Um... But if you do want to do, if you do want to watch American Gigolo, it is kind of fun to see sort of the ways in which they mood boarded that film into this into this show. Uh, it's not a, a direct one to one, but American Gigolo is an interesting little time capsule of a film. Um, and it, it, I was trying to read up because I, I I wasn't clear on why American Gigolo was so important when it came out. I just knew that it was an you know quote unquote important film of the time, um, and I think it has to do with um, the way in which that film. Well, A, there's there's a lot about the gay scene in that film, not particularly well done, but maybe done um, for a first and early time. And Richard Gere actually said, I was reading this old Rolling Stone interview he gave, and he said, like, that was one of the reasons why he did the film was because he knew nothing about the gay scene and he, like, wanted to find out about it and research it. Um, and then also the idea of male objectification, the obje- like the – Subverting the male gaze and making Richard Gere, I mean, Lauren Hutton, a beautiful um, model actress, is also in the film and is ogled by the camera. But, like, the camera mostly ogles Richard Gere. And that is sort of newish at the time. And that's something that we've seen in this show aplenty and certainly in in, um, other Ryan Murphy shows. And so, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that they picked that film very apt that they picked that film. And I think it, it sort of resonates not just in that episode, but kind of throughout this, this materialistic aspiration and all of this stuff is sort of echoed throughout. So anyway, next we have a conversation with director Gwyneth Horder Payton, who has directed three episodes of this. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q and a, 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Joining us today is director Gwyneth Horder Payton, who has worked on some of your favorite shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Sons of Anarchy, and for you, Ryan Murphy Completus, American Horror Story, Feud, and recently 911. She directed three episodes of this season of American Crime Story Episode 3, A Random Killing, Episode 6, Descent, and Episode 7, Ascent. Gwyneth Horder Payton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm I, wanted to start off by asking you about something that Brad Simpson had told me, which is that when they were conceiving the season of, of American Crime Story, they mood boarded each episode off of a film. And he said, you know, that they use David Lynch films or, or that um, the episode Descent, which is the one we're talking about this week, uh, was mood boarded off American Gigolo. Uh, were you, I'm, I'm assuming you were made aware of that. How how does that sort of system work for you as a director? I was aware of it. Um, I watched the picture again. Um, the um, uh, So the sequence, the, the opening for American Gigolo is the, now it's somewhat inf- uh, infamous um, scene as he's, as Richard Gere is driving the, the car and the, there's this crane up and over and and Blondie's singing. So we, um, you know, we did our rendition of that, which was more sophisticated because our equipment is more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was fun. That was fun to have that as an inspiration and then, and then take it several steps farther. Um, you know, the, 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 just to take, taking the tone of, of, of affluence, the blue sky, the whole LA atmosphere, and just having fun with that in Malibu. At a fantastic uh, house that we found, which was all glass, having the car drive into it and having the um, ability to have a, a very high crane so that we could swoop around, a uh, very American crime story, um, and then use that style to continue through the episode um, to kind of move on into our own thing of descent, away from American Gigolo, where it's... I tried to get a lot of going down the stairs <laughs> because we had stairs and we had a crane and stuff. Um, I have to say, I had already watched the episode before Brad told me that. And then I watched American Gigolo and then I watched the episode again. And I was sort of blown away by how could I have missed sort of all those elements. Was there an inspiration for episode three, A Random Killing? Um, no, unless I'm forgetting because I was shooting all three at one time. Um <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes all on the same day. It's like, oh shit, is he high now or not? <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's not. You know, it's like, <laughs> is he coming down off of speed now? Oh no, wait, no, he's out. He's he's just getting. He just got. You know, it's like, oh, um, 
So, no, that, that, but I did have a really good productive sit down with Ryan about that episode. And basically he said, it's all about control, Mm -hmm. control. Um, And everything is very, very measured. And that's what we did. And I think that that's sort of, sort of what I love about that episode. Um, Interestingly enough, when I first read it, I was not supposed to direct it. And I remember reading it and, and being, and being physically, mentally, emotionally affected by it for days. Like it was a, like a thin oil that clung to me, this feeling of dread and horror. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm not directing that episode. It's just horrific. And then I was. So then I just had to embrace all that. And, um, and I just, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience in that I had this cast and that particular crew was very symbiotic. So as far as having that, pulling off that tone, every minute of the day and every, every shot that we did and all the, and the acting and everything, it's just, it was, it was never a struggle. It was like, we were all on the same page, even though it was as often it is with these is flying by the seat of our pants, just a little bit. Uh, at least I'd had that script longer than the other ones. And I, everything was, it was very well thought out and very planned. Well, was there, so. was there a moment or a scene that was particularly challenging either from descent or ascent or random killing? Well, random killing was by far the most difficult, uh, in the killing itself. Um, I was supposed to, I went, I went beyond what the script said. I, I did the, the script didn't go as far. The script went as far as the, um, the bag of cement. I went further to do all everything that actually did happen in that killing because Ryan wanted me to make it so bad that people had to turn away. So we did, we did the whole thing and it was just, you know, it was, it was just Lee Miglin was 73 years old. And, um, of course we used a stunt double, uh, and Mike Farrell was there, but it wasn't enough to be laying there. Thank God, because he, his head was taped up, but it was still emotionally just very, that's hard to do. It's rough. Yeah. It's rough. It's a rough, rough scene. Um, and friends I spoke to did turn away, so I guess that worked. Were there any other takeaways you had from reading what was initially given to you? I did not have time for big, deep takeaways for six and seven. Um, the sense six was, I started with that, wasn't fully written. Mm. Um, I've shot it over a period of, I think, two months, um, descent. So that one was, I think that both descent and, and ascent were ascent more actually it was difficult to, um, I think I pulled it off, but as far as maintaining the, 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 the tone when you, when you, you're, you're shooting sporadically. Um, so that, that was a, ch- that was a challenge with, with both of those. I, I think we've succeeded, but that I, I would call that, that was the big challenge. Yeah. Tracking. Yeah. Tracking Darren Chris's performance up uh, from, uh, you know, Mm-hmm. noticing really noticing the camera work in descent for me that came through in um the confrontation between Jeff and Andrew in his apartment that sort of happens towards the end of the episode um and you've got these oh. like, really stark POV cameras you know like camera just like looking right down on Darren yeah. Chris's face can you talk about sort of your idea behind shooting that scene that was out of control so i i uh, i wanted that feeling so there was a lot of camera movement in that one yeah, you see such a change in Andrew in this episode from the beginning, that opening, that American Gigolo opening yeah. to this sort of berserk conversation at the end right. there. Um, and and you're right, the camera really does reflect that. Uh, you also have this great uh, opportunity in this episode to shoot 
really high high fantasy uh, with this drug trip that Andrew goes on. Um, what was your idea behind oh, making yeah. that stylistically I different? I talk about that. Yeah. There, a number of people didn't know really what meth does. Um, so it was much more <laughs> pot-like or hallucinogenic, like camera moves, and I let all that happen. And then I said, you know, I'm sorry, but that's actually not meth. That's a it's a it's a it's a um it's an acceleration of everything and so i then did my version mm-hmm. of having fr- having known friends many years ago who had gone through some major mass experiences um and i pulled back quickly with a camera mhm yeah as he yeah as he as yeah it was much more of a, a just distinct camera move where uh it was much more of a commitment to move quickly to to this accelerated high so and then he snapped his head back so i just went from a you know kind of underwater move to a snappy move and i think we used a combination of both there's that red was uh a ryan murphy red that was that was ryan everything needed to be red um so we did that and uh it all went red yeah there's reds and blues sort of in that in that fantasy scene, which winds up being sort of the color scheme they use for all the marketing that we got for this, like is seen, I think, in that oh. in that drug trip. And it looks I mean, it looks amazing. It looks so good. So you've been working, uh, you know, with the ex- I think one exception sort of almost exclusively in the, in the Ryan Murphy verse. Like if you had your druthers, is, would you only work for Ryan Murphy? Like, what is it like working, directing um, a Murphy show versus another uh, showrunner or creator? Well, so it's, it's, it, it was a choice to, to work only for Ryan Murphy for the last year and a half. That was, a, you know, just a choice I made um, because of the quality of the, of the, of the, uh, the writing and, uh, and the production, all the, the produ- production designers, the, the uh, costume designers, all, you know, the whole crew, top notch. Um, and what is it like? It's very different. It's, it's really different than other shows. Um, there's a lot of, um, because there, I mean, every show aspires to perfection for sure. Um, I think Ryan just pushes it a little further. So all to say that sometimes the scripts don't really, you know, we don't have quite the prep. And um, so the crew and the cast uh, have developed a uh, an attitude of um, we'll make it work here, and without and without any without a freak out, not a single freak out. Nobody's going <laughs> to even react to mm-hmm. anything that's out of the ordinary. So. Whatever change comes up, whatever, I've got all three cameras rolling. We've even marked it. And I say, oh, actually, guys, sorry, can we do version three, please? And then they all, like, which is move the dog back, (laughs) boom up, like a complete refiguration. Mm -hmm. Or whatever. I'd like to not do that, but let's say I did do that. I wouldn't have a freak out. I would have people, operators, everybody, focus pullers, dog, look at me with absolutely no reaction, say, sure. And then they just do it. So wow. that's kind of unusual. 
I am my my last question for you. And once again, I really appreciate your time today. Um, everyone that I've talked to who's worked on the show, um, actors, producers, has mentioned a, a really personal connection to the material. You know, you talked about friends who had been on meth, but I was just wondering if you had a personal connection to the gay community or the gay experience in the nineties or, or, you know, the AIDS epidemic or any of this, of the subject matter that this show is diving into. Oh, it's not as personal as other people's experiences. I don't think, I mean, yes, I worked on Polk street in the nineties. Um, no, it was the eighties. Wait, it was the eighties. I was there. Um, and that's when people were, uh, dying um, in the, in San Francisco, um, as, as you know. Um, so, I mean, that's as close as I got. I, I, I don't have, it's all secondhand. That part is secondhand for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was there. Yeah, it was secondhand. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, I really appreciate it and for your great work. Um, and I will, Oh, you're welcome. I will let you get back to set, but I really appreciate everything. Thank you. So, Richard, if I've read Maureen Orth's book and done all my other homework, is there any other book currently out in bookstores that you would recommend that I read? Why, yes, Joanna, there is. Oh. It's called All We Can Do Is Wait, and the author is me. What? Uh, it came, yep. Mm-hmm. came out a couple weeks ago. It's, uh, you know, it's people seem to like it. So it's a young adult novel about... Um, sad things and, and, and tragedy so you know it'll just go really well with all this sad tragedy stuff on the show so I recommend highly and please beg of you that go out and buy it so yeah if, if you want to keep swimming around in the tragedy until your fingers get all pruney please buy Richard's book it's um, hopeful at the end though I promise otherwise you can you can enjoy us talking about uh, all things culture over on verycare.com you can listen to us talk about award season over on little gold men which is really heating up richard where can people find you on twitter i'm at rylaws r-i-l-a-w-s and i am at joe wrote this and thank you guys so much this episode was engineered by danielle roth produced by dave gonzalez with editorial support from katie rich and until next week see you then I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.